Welcome back to Ask the Compound. We always appreciate your emails. We appreciate everyone who's in the live chat. We appreciate all the YouTube comments. Remember, our email here is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. I've actually gotten a few questions about my budgeting in recent months because I said I use a spreadsheet. And after I said that, Rocket Money reached out. Uh, I like Rocket Money because they actually find subscriptions you forgot about because I feel like for subscriptions are a huge thing these days where you have a, a million of them. I do. I have like one for every single streaming service. I have all these subscriptions to financial publications. There's probably a couple I'm paying extra for. So Rocket Money can actually find if you are doubling up, they can cancel a subscription for you or that they can actually negotiate a price. If they see a price increase, I usually go in, uh, negotiate on my own behalf for my cable bill. I would love it to have Rocket Mortgage do it for me which is great. So it's a personal finance app that just finds and cancels these unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending, helps you lower your bills. It's all in one place. So you can go to rocketmoney.com slash ATC to learn more for budgeting. And people have asked, how do I how do I find a good budgeting tool? This is a good one. Yeah. I, I haven't used a lot of these in my day, but I, I tried Rocket Money and I like it. So rocketmoney.com slash ATC. Sounds cool. Yeah, I'm just glad that we got rid of the cable packages. You know, now I just have 18... Payments every month that I have to make exactly. for different you have services. One payment now. Now that's the thing. No, people don't really know what they're spending. This is a way to do it, and and they can tell you because a lot of those prices have been going up. So you could say, oh wait, I signed up for that one because I was going to use it for months to watch Harry Potter, whatever it is. I should have canceled it. I didn't. It's still there. They'll they'll already do that. Yep. Do a question. Call. Okay, up first today, we have noob question here with the possibility of interest rates dropping in a year or so. Should a long-term investor looking for reasonable yield and capital gains be looking to buy bonds right now? If so, what would you look at? Thanks. Not a noob question in the slightest, I say. I think most investors don't really pay much attention to the bond market. I think for a long time, they didn't really have to. But I think the past few years, the bond market has been way more interesting than the stock market. Right? We had a huge bear market last year in bonds. Bond yields got to their lowest levels in history in 2020. I wrote a few months ago about how T-bills were like the biggest no-brainer investment that there was. So John, throw up the first chart here, do a chart on of the yield curve. This is as of April, 2023. You can see the low end, it was three to six months, we're yielding over 5%. And then if you go out 10, 20, 30 years, we're talking still well below 4%. And so T-bills to me were a no-brainer. Like as the, Whereas the Fed had been forcing fixed income investors way out on the risk curve since the great financial crisis, now investors were being punished for duration in a rising rate environment, plus short-term T-bills had a higher yield to boot. So you were getting lower volatility and a much higher yield. It, it made a lot of sense. And I still think T-bills look pretty darn attractive, so, uh, you know, since they're still above 5%, pretty much 12 months and, and below. So if the Fed raises rates again, T-bill yields will rise. The thing is, the one risk you do have in T-bills is re reinvestment risk. You can't lock in those 5% T-bill yields for more than a year right now, right? I even looked, I went to Marcus where I have my short-term online savings account. I looked at a five-year CD rate there this week. What do you think? For five years, how long can you lock your rate in? How long can you lock it in for a CD, Duncan? For five years? Yeah, what kind of yield? I mean, I would hope that it would be close to treasuries. Four it's or like 5%? 3.8%. Okay. So not bad, but you can't get these five, five and a half percent yields and lock them in forever. And that's the same thing with T-bills. If we have a recession or if inflation keeps falling and the Fed decides to cut rates, eventually those T-bill yields are going to go down and the reinvestment risk is what gets you there, right? So now look at the updated yield curve, John. Let's take a look at it now through this week. You can see those T-bill yields are still high and they've gone up a little bit, but the, the long end of the curve has come up more, right? One, two, three, five, seven, 10, 20, 30 years are all well above 4% now, way better than they were in April. That's meant for more pain for the bond world. B 
because rates have risen, so prices have fallen. But now you can earn, and you still get, a, again, a premium in the T-bills. But I think intermediate-term bonds are looking way more interesting from a combination of higher yields and falling inflation. Right? I'm not a bond trader, but let's look at the, the case for adding some duration here. John, throw up my table here. So this is a table of the duration and average yield maturities for various bond ETFs. So one to three-year treasuries, yielding almost 5%. Duration is almost two years. Three to seven-year treasuries, a little lower average yield maturity, about four years of duration. Seven to 10 years is you know seven years of duration. And the ag, which is like a total bond index, is yielding about 5% at 6.2 years for duration. So just as a reminder, duration is just a measure of interest rate sensitivity to bond prices. So Duncan, if interest rates rise 1% and you have a duration of five years, your bond prices will go down 5%. Right. And then the inverse is true. If rates fall 1%, your bond prices go up 5%. Now, the thing is, when bond yields were 1% and rates went up 1%, you got dinged 5% for that duration, but your 1% yield barely gave you any cushion. Now, if you have a 5% yield, in a year, you're breaking even. So, yes, it would sting if bond rates went up from here and because the, the economy accelerated or the Fed kept raising rates or inflation stays high, but you have a much bigger margin of safety now in these intermediate-term bonds. And, and oh, by the way, if your rates rise 1% from here, now we're talking about 6% starting yields. So I think now that yields are higher, the, the break-even and margin of safety is much bigger. So bonds could have some, some short-term downside, but 90 to 95% of expected returns five and 10 years out for intermediate-term bonds comes from the starting yield. Whatever the starting yield is, plus or minus a little bit of wiggle room, that's going to tell you your future returns. So expected returns are way higher because we went through the pain of 2022 and the bond bear market. So I actually think that you're in a much better place now. And if you want to hedge for recession risk or deflation risk or rates falling and the Fed cutting, intermediate term bonds look pretty good. Another positive development is tip yield. John, throw this up there. This is treasury inflation protected securities. This is the 10-year. I was taught early in my career, anything in the 2 to 3% yield range for these, this is nominal yields, is a good development. And what this means is you're getting that yield plus the inflation kicker. So that's a pretty good deal. You can see in 2020, 2021, and 2022, it was negative nominal yields, meaning you were, you were accepting yields that were less than 0%. So you're, all you were hoping for was inflation there. And those bonds got killed because rates rose too. So I guess my thinking here is I don't pretend to have the ability to predict where rates are going to go, but I don't think you need to bank on capital appreciation from bonds to do well here. You, if rates just stayed where they were, at 4 or 5%, you're doing way better than you were over the last 15 to 20 years. So I think you have some options. If you're worried about rising rates or inflation, T-bill yields are still nice. And if rates rise more, they will rise too. Uh, if you're worried about deflation or recession or falling rates, intermediate-term bonds look good. You could go way out on the risk curve and do 20 or 30-year bonds, but that's too much volatility for my, uh, my liking. And, and then if you're worried about purchasing power, you have tips where you have yield plus the inflation kicker. So I don't know. I think if you're if you're diversified in the fixed income space, your your options haven't haven't been better in I don't know twenty years or so in this space. So I think you're pretty good. And again, you don't have to have yields fall to do well here. You just have to have rates stay where they are, and you're going to be fine. And clip those five percent coupons. I used to buy that um, junk uh, J and K. I think was the ETF because it had like it. such a nice juicy yield. What is that at these days? You think like so that that's seven or eight percent, I guess something oh, yeah. like that. But then you you take away any default risk. We're talking mostly treasuries here. The ag is like forty or fifty percent treasuries. So that's not all treasuries. They don't have any junk bonds in there. But um, 
based on your tolerance for risk, that doesn't really surprise me <laughs> that you were into junk bonds. That's, that's more like equity risk, though, when when the right. excrement hits the fan. So, but yeah, no, I, I think you're in you're in a much better position for fixed income in terms of having options now than you did before. Right. Also, Do rest in life. peace, I bonds. You know, haven't heard anything. Yeah, about it. It was, was fun for like nine months. Yeah. Okay, that no, question was from how many uh, questions Roger. we got about that. I know yeah, that was fun. like weekly. Every week we had Ibon questions. Um, now nothing. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that was Roger. Up next, we have a question from David. First off, thank you for all that you do and all the insightful content you put out. I'm 24 years old and have managed to save up roughly $135,000, half in a high yield savings account and half in taxable and Roth accounts. Yep. Uh, I don't have any equity build up in a house nor do I have a 401k. I'll be taking the Series 65 and CFP later this year and will hopefully land a job with a 401k and benefits. Did I ultimately screw myself by not having a 401k earlier or am I okay for now? This is a 24-year-old asking if it's too late. Yeah, you're doing just fine. Obviously, like the personal finance gurus have got to this person, to David. Uh, My first job I worked in the industry. I was there for three years or so. My salary was buckus. I didn't make anything. There was no 401k plan. I had no dental insurance. We had health ins- health insurance, but it was bare bones. And I mean, I just got out of college, so let's be honest. I didn't go to the doctor, right? Never. Who goes to the doctor when they get out of college? Unless something's really wrong. Still. Even then. So it was a small business. There was five of us. There was one main guy, and there was four younger people who were just kind of learning. And I learned a ton on that job, so it was definitely worth it. It was more about learning than earning for me. Right, so I, I learned a ton of stuff that I still use to this day about asset allocation and investing guidelines and client communications and setting expectations. It was great, but I didn't have a four hundred and one k for the first three years of my career, and I I had no four hundred and one k. So I think I mentioned this before. I opened up an IRA, target date fund, obviously, and put fifty dollars a month into. It. That's all I could afford. As my career progressed, I started to make more income. I slowly but surely increased that. My I got a four hundred and one k for my second job. I started putting money into that. Uh, I know we have a lot of super savers who write into the show, that especially people, young people in their 20s and 30s. Like, I'm maxing out my 401k, my IRA, my HSA, 529 for my unborn child, whatever it is. We have a lot of these super savers who write in. I applaud those people. You're so far ahead of the game. You're, you know, you're money and you didn't even know it, right? I just turned 42 this month. I don't think I started maxing out my 401k till my early to mid-30s, right? Seems late. Like, Ben, how could you? What is wrong with you? Like I said, I didn't make a lot of money early in my career, so I've been playing catch-up for the last eight or nine years, pretty much. Uh, and life got in the way so many times. Saving for a house, paying for home renovation. My, I've mentioned before, my wife and I had infertility issues that cost a lot of money. All that stuff held back our retirement savings, so I couldn't, you know, I got close, but I never, I couldn't really do it. I think I was maybe 33 or 34 by the time I could finally max out. And guess what? I don't worry about it. It's fine. It happens. Life gets in the way. This person, David, you're still 24. Yes, saving early and often can help you in terms of like compounding, but you're certainly not screwed. You've managed to save six figures already in these other accounts uh, before you're able to rent a car. That's pretty good. That's still 25, right, for renting a car? I think so. I was about to make that joke, actually. So yeah. <laughs> never, made, never made sense to me. I, yeah. I, I don't get it, uh, the 25 thing. Uh, people are living longer than ever these days. So young people in their 20s, you, may, you have many, many decades ahead of you. Uh, I don't know. Once you get that 401k, you can start funneling money in there. But, I mean... If you have an IRA and a brokerage or high-yield savings account, you're fine. I mean, you obviously have developed some pretty good habits by putting that money away already. And the fact that you're worrying about this stuff at age 24 means either way you're probably going to be fine. So Yeah, you know, I feel like David's probably, like the be-all, end-all. David's probably depressing a lot of our uh, younger audience watching right now <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because, yeah, it sounds like sounds like he's doing pretty well. 
And we had Nick Majulian probably over a year ago talking about how you should max out your 401k. And just keeping your money in a brokerage account with index funds gets you to pretty much the same place anyway. So I think you'll be fine. Once you get one, you can always put money in there and get your tax deferral or whatever. Uh, Bill Sweet would probably tell you to get a Roth 401k if you have the option. But no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You have plenty of time. And uh, Series 65, that's like, uh, is that something trading related or? Yeah, so you can sell securities. Okay. So he's, he's somehow going to sell securities, working in the finance world. He's going to be fine. Gotcha. All right. Next question. All right. Up next, we have a question from Micah. I'm in my late 20s, single, no kids, rent an apartment, and hold a stable federal government job, knock on wood. I keep the lower end of the three to six months of emergency fund because of the stability of my job, and I have access to $60,000 in a taxable brokerage account that, God forbid, I would ever have to use. Am I crazy for only holding an emergency fund of three months? All right. All these people in their 20s so worried. I never worried about anything in my 20s, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just, yeah. Not a care in the world. Uh, I've never really agreed with the whole personal finance trope of you have to have 12 months of savings in your emergency fund before you can move on to saving for this. And like, I don't know, especially when you're young, it's basically impossible to save that much. I don't know how many people actually have the ability to save that much without just complete living on bread and water and not doing anything ever. Uh, plus, the good news is uh, at, at Micah's stage in life, you have so few responsibilities. Let's look at your situation. I think emergency fund levels should be circumstantial to the responsibilities you have. So he holds a stable government job. I know people who work for the federal government. It's basically impossible to get fired. I heard a story one time about someone actually literally bringing a gun in on accident and leaving it in the bathroom counter, and they did not get fired. They work for the federal government. when that happens. Right? Uh, no kids, no mortgage, no spouse. Why do you need 12 months in emergency savings? Plus, you have, you have three months, it sounds like, and you have this contingency plan of a $60,000 brokerage account to break in case of a true emergency. Plus, if you're a single person, altering your life is so much easier. Like, if, if something really does hit the fan here in your finances, your job, something ever does go wrong, uh, you can cut back mercilessly on your lifestyle as a single person. That's much harder to do when you have responsibilities in your 30s and 40s when you have a mortgage or a family or someone else to support. So I'd be more worried about taking trips and enjoying yourself in your 20s, doing stuff that you're not going to be able to do when you have those responsibilities in your 30s and 40s. So it sounds to me like he's already a good saver. You know, you don't need the fortress balance sheet like Berkshire Hathaway when you're in this situation. You're single and you have all this stuff and you already are, have saved money. As long as you have the backup plan, 12 months is overkill. Three months, to me, is fine. I would say worry more about enjoying yourselves. And um, I don't know. I, is this like a Dave Ramsey thing? So worried. Does Dave Ramsey talk about like having really... I could see a lot, have, a lot of personal finance people think this is a rule of thumb. And again, I think it's circumstantial. Like, and I mean, yeah, to when, be clear, I'm not knocking it. definitely makes more sense than not having any any you know emergency savings. But yeah, it sounds like it could be it could get a little excessive. And again, it also depends on your person. other backup plan B, plan C, plan D in terms of I have this other money or whatever I can tap. I don't think you need to do it just because you have to hit the checkbox because some personal finance guru said you had to do it. Right. Yeah. Doesn't make sense to me. Yep. You're fine. And you're a personal finance guru, so you said that now. So that counters wherever they heard this, you know? That, that's a trump card. Yep. I'm on YouTube, so it has to matter. It's true. All right. One more. All right. Next up question. next, we have a question from Scott. The next time you have Jonathan Novi on the show, can you have him go into further detail about long-term care insurance? My wife and I are in our 50s and each have a family history with medical issues. Uh, how do we determine if long-term care makes sense for our financial plan? All right, we go from 20s to 50s here. Spoiler alert, who's on the show? Yeah, well, yeah, if, if someone gets called up by name, we'll bring him on the show. Jonathan Novi, 
our advisors and insurance hey, expert extraordinaire at Ritholtz. Hey, guys. Jonathan, I'm honestly not too familiar with this type of insurance because I, I haven't had to use it before. So why don't you just start with the basics? Like, what is it? How does it work? And like, when should sure. you think about getting it? Uh, okay. So there's a really big backstory with long-term care insurance and how the insurance industry got it really wrong and how they um, and how they built policies. Suffice to say that no one's caffeinated enough listening now to actually sit through the entire story. So I'll cut to what's happening now. Um, it The industry looks nothing like it did many years ago. And there are almost no what's known as standalone long-term care policies available anymore. By standalone, what I mean is you pay a premium, and then eventually, if you make a claim, great, they'll pay it for you, or the money goes away, a lot like homeowner's insurance or something like that. So there's only a very, very small number of standalone carriers left. The carriers that used to sell this kind of insurance, whether it be Genworth or John Hancock or uh, Metropolitan Life, they're all out, out of the business, and all they're doing is choking on these existing books of businesses they are struggling to pay for. Is, this, is that because... It, like, because I've seen the health studies before that show, like the percentage of spending for healthcare in your later years before you die, that's like the the majority of the money gets spent. Then is that why? Was it just too expensive? So that's one of the three reasons that insurance companies got the pricing wrong. Uh, the cost of care absolutely exploded. It also has to do with the fact that nobody lapses long term care insurance. I mean, anecdotally, if anyone has a history in their family where someone made a claim on long term care, it's terrible. Um, People live for a very long time. The care is unbelievably expensive. So nobody lapses long-term care like they typically do with things like permanent life insurance. And what, what exactly uh, does it, if you have it, what exactly does it get you? It gets you the ability to pay. Uh, so it's a very good question. All long-term care insurance contracts have built into them that if a, an insured cannot satisfy two of the activities of daily living, whether that's feeding yourself or traveling or taking medication or bathing yourself or something like that. If a doctor says you cannot satisfy two activities of daily living, then you can make a claim on a long-term care policy. And they will pay for, some will pay for in-home care, some will pay for care in facilities. There's all these different bells and whistles on the contracts. Suffice to say that generally speaking, when you can't satisfy two activities of daily living, you can make a claim on a policy. And there's like 90-day elimination periods or 180-day elimination periods, but we can get rid of all of the kind of small details there. If you can't take care of yourself anymore, then you can make a claim on a policy. When I'm no longer able to tweet, that's the ring the bell for me. Yes. Yeah, that actually may um, count in disability more than long-term care. So at your age, so that's a really good question. Um, So this guy's, you're in your 50s who asked the question here, uh, asking what is a good time for you to look into it? Well, that's, I was going to ask is, so like life insurance, if you buy it when you're younger, obviously it's way Mm -hmm. cheaper. Does the same thing apply here? If you buy it in your fifties, as opposed to your sixties or maybe your seventies, it has to be cheaper, right? Does that make sense or not? Well, a little bit. Um, So the the thing about long-term care is with some of the new contracts available, these what's known as asset-based contracts, uh, People can't buy it before they reach 50 or 55 because carriers won't sell it to them because then what they have to do is accommodate a rising benefit, an inflated benefit, and it's more risk for the insurance carrier. So some of these you can't buy when you're young. Other kind of contracts you can. Most of what you can buy now is a life insurance chassis with a long-term care rider or capability attached to it. So when you think about what the right time is to buy it, most importantly, it should be grounded in your financial plan. Most people, like Ben, you, like me, I'm in my early 50s. 
I'm busy paying term insurance premiums. I'm busy paying for disability insurance because the bigger risk right now to my family is that I die or I'm disabled and I'm saving for college and I'm doing all of that stuff. And once I have all of those things paid for, if there's any money left over, then I'm probably gonna be investing it in something else. So long-term care comes in when all of a sudden you probably don't need to pay for disability insurance anymore or term insurance isn't necessarily a thing because people buy insurance because there will be a financial impact on their family in the event they were to die or in the event they were to need long-term care. Um, there's a time when it fits into your individual financial plan. And that's what somebody should pay attention to is when it becomes reasonable, reasonable for them to think about one, how they can afford it, and two, when it fits into their plan. Now, the older you get, obviously, the more expensive it is. So 50s is actually a reasonable time to look at it. But I want to point out one other thing in this question. Um, with a family history of like, cognitive issues, insurance carriers, many of them will uh, underwrite those issues and, and limit an individual's ability to be insured based on a family history of cognitive issues, whether it be dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, stuff like that. So, so, wait, so how do you, you how do you do like the cost benefit on this then? Because you'd have to at a certain point you'd have to say, well, if they're going to jack the rates up me on me because I have a family history, is it better for me to just set aside some money as opposed to buying the insurance? It might be. It might not be. With insurance, if you make a claim, you can point out that once you've paid your premiums, how long it will take you to have made your money back or how long it will take you for it to have been worth it. Now, there's other thing that goes along with long-term care insurance. Um, all carriers provide care coordination services. So what that means is, if all of a sudden, let's say, one, like one of our parents or something needs care, most people, when they need some sort of custodial care, they have absolutely no idea who to call or what to do. It's like, yeah, there's like a nursing home in town or something like that. Or do you go to your doctor and say, all of a sudden I need someone to come in here and care for my mom or my dad because they can't care for themselves anymore? I mean, that's what happens a lot. It's usually falls on the family, right? The family is right. supposed to take care of people, right? Right, but nobody knows what to do. And families right. need to bring in professionals to do this. So right. insurance contracts come with care coordination services. I'm not saying that this is the best coordination in the world, but at least it's something. And at least it's links to um, services that are available to help you understand it. In addition to that, there are a couple kind of bits of information that you can get free on the internet to understand this. There's two places if you want to learn about long-term care that you would check. One of them you're, is- You're answering my next question. Like, where do people start if they want to learn about this? So go to your state insurance commissioner or state department of insurance. Just use the Google machine and look up long-term care. There's a lot of good information on things like your state partnership program. That's a thing. It has to do with Medicaid. Um, you want to look at state partnership programs. You want to look at the possible deductibility of premiums. All this stuff will exist on your state website. In addition to that, the NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, publishes a really informative pamphlet. There it is. The Shopper's Guide to Long-Term Care Insurance. Uh, I would say have a very big coffee before you read it, but there's very good information in that thing. And that's the good place to start. So I think the, the reason someone uh, wants to learn this, someone, someone in the comments says that his, their mom's in nursing home was $7,500 a month. So like the, this stuff is oh, yeah. crazy expensive, obviously. Mm -hmm. At 7,500 months, 7,500 a month, I'd say you're getting a bargain. 
So do our, do so our viewers expensive. in Canada not have to worry about this? We have a, a big audience I'm sure we here. have viewers in Canada and Europe who say, like, you Americans are crazy. This is, like, a discussion for another time. But, like, why do you have to worry about this even? Obviously, that's a, that's a whole bigger well, policy question. But So regarding that policy question, the state of Washington uh, was last year or the year before. Actually, it mandated that citizens own a state-sponsored long-term care insurance policy. It's not a very big one. And they're paying for it through a payroll tax, a 0.58% payroll tax. There are two other states right now that are considering doing that. I think it's New York and California. Uh, there are ways to opt out of that insurance contract if you can prove that you own a policy yourself. But um, this is a thing now, legislatively, and people are recognizing that the cost of care is unbelievably high. Especially with uh, the, people living longer, and we have all these seventy million baby boomers, and like that's a right. I, I by around my house with like a five mile radius, I swear I've seen six old folks' homes go up in the last ten mm -hmm. years or so. Like they yeah, know the wave of people is coming. Right, you can't the cost to do things like reserve beds in there. Right. The costs continue to go up, uh, and as a result, like insurance carriers for existing policies and things like that, they're raising premiums on policies that have been enforced for years. I mean, anecdotally, my mom and dad own a contract where the cost of it has doubled to maintain the same benefits that they had when they started. Okay, we'll we'll include a link to that, but so. some stuff in the uh, on the YouTube. But uh, good stuff. I, I honestly didn't know much about this, so let's do another one, Duncan. Okay. Last but not least, we have a question from Alan, and Alan says. I see a lot of annuity companies offering 5% plus for five years. Got one for 5.2% right now. These are selling like hotcakes all over advisor land. Why do you think annuity companies can go out five years at these rates while banks are all stuck offering 12-month CDs? Do insurance companies know something about the future interest rates? I'd like to hear your thoughts on how they can profitably offer these competitive rates for so long and pay me a commission. Okay, this gets back to our first question where I said you can't lock in T-bill yields right now, whereas annuity mm -hmm. salesmen say, uh-uh, yes, I can. So okay, I guess part of it is this like is the pretty pooling simple. of assets, right? So there's the pooling of assets. Now, that applies to what I believe is a different kind of annuity than he's talking about in this question. So there's lots of annuities out there. Also, before you from, get into this, I, I'm yep. actually surprised that the, these things are selling hotcakes because you can get decent yields in bonds. Right, that, right that surprised me. Reading that, I yeah. guess people just love the the certainty of having something locked in. I, I, yes, people love certainty, so that's something with annuities. I have no idea if they're selling like hotcakes or not. Uh, I guess that depends where you are and what your incentives are to sell them. I guess we can get into that a little more in a minute. But um, there's a lot of different kinds of annuities out there, from this kind that he's talking about, which is just a simple fixed annuity. We can get into things like variable annuities and QLAX and SPIAs and of that nonsense later if anybody wants to. But in this specific case, a simple fixed annuity, the reason, and it's a term of time, let's say five years, the reason an insurance company can pay a little bit more than a bank is because an insurance company can invest its general account slightly more aggressively than a bank can with its reserves. So an insurance company can do more than just own like government bonds and some mortgages. They can own corporate bond portfolios. They can own some, I believe, some small equities. They can uh, not have to worry about the same need for liquidity that banks do. So because of that, if you're going slightly out on the risk ladder and you can match some liabilities, like it used to be, I mean, this points to a question you had earlier in the show, used to be that yields that were further out 
were higher than yields that were closer in. They so, should be, yeah. Right, they should be. So if you have a longer time horizon, typically insurance carriers can match the liability to something that's a longer date. And as long as there are decent credits and what they're owning, you can just offer a better yield. Now, there are trade-offs with everything. Uh, at the end of a fixed annuity, you're going to pay income tax on the like all of the yield in there. It just is the way it is. That's the way an annuity is set up. So, Plus, there's the um, liquidity issue. There's the built-in fees. There's a lot of this. So like, if you wanted that money or before the term is well, up, you're gonna there's going to be a penalty. A hefty surrender. Right. You're going to pay a really hefty surrender. So that's part of it, too, is if, it, if, it's a, if it's a five-year annuity, you're giving up that liquidity, and that's one of the reasons, that, too, that they can pay a higher yield because they know they don't have to pay you back in 12 months if you want the money. Otherwise, you have to pay a fee, and, and your yield goes down, obviously. So, so it's essentially it's exactly a contract. Right. You're signing a contract, and to get out of it, yes. you have to pay to, to break the contract. Yeah, it's a contract with an insurance company. And to be fair, um, granted, you wouldn't be that worried about a reputable insurance carrier paying you back. But there is slightly more risk to an annuity than there is a CD because a CD is FDIC insured. Right, you have the counterparty risk. Yeah. I think the one thing we've learned today from you, Jonathan, is that insurance products are complicated, right? <laughs> I think we've learned so they can these be. questions. Yeah. Uh, they can be very complicated. Um, there's Again, there's another discussion about annuities to be had here that I, we can get into if you guys want to. When, something I'd mentioned mentioned to you, you know, off off the show, Jonathan, is with defined mm -hmm. outcome ETFs, which everyone's been talking about so much lately. Yeah, I mean, what what role really do these products play? Do annuities play? Okay. So defined outcome ETFs are different than annuities that give you guaranteed income. Uh, I think defined outcome ETFs are great because people hate uncertainty. And it's the hating of uncertainty that is the reason, generally speaking, that people buy annuities. But annuities give you guarantees. Now, there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether those guarantees are worth it. But that's not a financial plan discussion. That's an individual discussion. That's a right. A, right. Like so a some people simply can't handle the risk of having a diversified right. portfolio and seeing it go down in value or seeing it go up and be volatile. And they would just want something like this that just gives them money and tell me how much money I'm going to get. And obviously, you can you don't have to. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But I think that's that's the idea. Some people just don't want to have that uncertainty. Right. And there's a lot of research out there, whether it be from Wade Fow or Michael Kitsis, that uh, say that people with guaranteed income, meaning annuities, um, they tend to spend more in their retirement than people who don't have guaranteed income, and they intend to have a much more kind of psychologically comfortable retirement, like spending path. Which is another if, topic that's come up on this show a lot: is people who have absolutely all this money and they can't force themselves to spend it. So an annuity, you're right, it gives you a stream of income, even if it's a bad deal and it makes you spend more. For some people, maybe that psychological hurdle is worth it. Right. And generally, annuities do get a have a terrible reputation, well-deserved, because uh, the problem with annuities, like I've said before on here, it's not the contracts themselves. It's the people who are incentivized to sell them. Right. Um, they come with big commissions. So anytime you have an incentive structure built in like that, there's going to be a loser. Uh, and it's typically the person who's buying the thing with the high commission. Right. So and maybe, maybe that's what the, the person asking this question should think about is like, is this a product that's right for some people in some situations? Yes. But is it right for every person in every situation? Of course not. And that's how you have to right. approach it. Yep. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Good stuff, Jonathan. All right. Thanks for joining Excellent. us. As always, we, we get a lot of insurance questions. So this is, this is helpful stuff. Remember, you can Happy email to come us. come on anytime. 
askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. I saw we had a couple questions in the live show today. We'll have to pull some of those out. Leave us a question or comment on YouTube. Give us a rating, review. What else? Don't get subscribed. All that good stuff. Yeah, and just, just a reminder, we don't have a TCAF this week, so we'll be back next week. Okay, nothing tomorrow. All right, watch everything again one more time. Askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. For listening to Ask the Compound, all opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.